Hello, and welcome to what's going to be the last of the podcast episodes on life in Norman England. And in this one, we're going to try and wrap everything up. The key question here, the key idea that we need to be trying to get our heads around is how much does life actually change under the Normans? As we go through English history, this illusion starts to create that Anglo-Saxon England was a magnificent, wonderful, egalitarian society where every man was free and everybody had a say. And then the Normans came in and took it over and imposed their continental system on everybody. It's called the Norman yoke. It becomes a very popular idea during the civil wars of the 1600s. This idea that free-born English men have been suffering under the depredations of the ruling classes ever since 1066 and hearkening back to a golden age of Edward the Confessor and Alfred the Great. Does this view hold water or is it a pile of fetid dingo's kidneys? Well, that's what we're going to try and figure out now. So, let's talk about the overall impact of the Norman invasion and then let's think about who is affected and how. So let's start with the big one, land. We know how land was organized before. You have the earls and you have the thanes and you have the uh, landowners and then you have the peasants down at the bottom. That's the Anglo-Saxon system. The king is no different to any of the other earls. He's merely the head of a great family and he holds land like that. Then you get the arrival of the Normans at which point the king takes control of everything. And now land is his to give or take away as he see fits, and land therefore becomes a major mechanism of control. The idea that the king rewards those who are loyal and he punishes those who are disloyal through the grant and removal of land. The feudal system itself is intimately tied to land. You therefore cannot separate the two. Landholding and lordship are the same thing. This system of control is entirely new. It is entirely alien to the people of England. So this is a major change, isn't it? Well, here's my question on this one. If you are Unferth, a simple peasant, living in the village of Fallsgrave, and the Normans come, what's actually changed about your life? What's actually different? Do you notice anything? Or is it all pretty much the same, just the person who's in charge of you is now speaking a different language? You see, things change massively for the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy, aside from the fact that a large proportion of them are slaughtered at the Battle of Hastings, those that are left are dispossessed and cast out after being given a number of opportunities to show their loyalty. But yes, their lives have changed quite significantly and they found themselves with very little power. But for your average peasant, who remember, makes up the vast majority of people in England, has much changed at all. That's something I'd like you to have a little think about when you listen to the episodes and do your revision on the life of a peasant. What's changed?
and what hasn't. Be that as it may, the organization of the kingdom has changed massively. So that's land and lordship. Now let's talk about laws. What laws have been introduced and what laws have been changed? Well, we know about the ordeals, because everybody always remembers that, because that's a bit of fire and water and death and destruction, and people always remember that. But remember, the Anglo-Saxons used ordeals as well. It's just that the Normans used them slightly more. So these are not a new introduction. These are simply... Uh, slightly more aggressively enforced than they were before. So what laws are new? Well, murder and fines, that's new. The changes to inheritance are rather large, and that's to do with, again, landholding and lordship. This idea that the land stays in a single block instead of being split off and farmed out to the various sons and daughters and other people who might inherit. So that's a rather large change. And then there's the big one, isn't there? Forest law. And that's a massive change to everything. That's the king showing his ownership of the very soil of the kingdom. You cannot go here. You cannot hunt here. If you are found here, you will lose your eye. You will lose your hand. Forest law is a huge change. And it is also a major source of discontent amongst the peasants because it's a, a, a very large change to the way they've lived their lives throughout their previous experience, their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers before them. This idea of hunting to support your family is now gone and it's been criminalised. And hunting now becomes a sport for the upper classes, for the Normans. So that's a big change, I would suggest. Physically, in terms of what you can see in the landscape, I think it's difficult to argue that the single biggest change that the Normans brought was not castles. A constant visual reminder. This is not something that the Anglo-Saxons did. They simply did not build castles. They did not have these large, permanently fortified places. This is something that was common in Normandy. And this is the way the Normans controlled the land. And this is the way the Normans made war. And they imported it with them. And that's a strange idea to get your head around. Because if you ask people about the past in England, especially if you ask Americans, and if Americans come over here for a holiday, they visit castles. That's what they see. And that's what they think of. That is what England is to them, English history castles. But they're not English. They're Norman. And they're everywhere. And they are constantly an alien imposition on the landscape. And I think that is, as we have discussed before, part of the point. It's a form of psychological warfare. A constant reminder for the peasants that we are here and we are your masters now. I think you should also consider the speed with which they're built and how much they're going to upset and frighten the locals and also, of course, how much work they're going to introduce. As we've talked before about the construction of castles and we'll talk again about the construction of cathedrals, they're economic engines for the local area. So they lead to a concentration of craftsmen 
in the area. You need more smiths, you need more masons, you need more sculptors. So I think you can say that as well as being a change to the landscape, castles are also a change to the economic landscape of the country as well. Then, of course, there's language. Now, this is one of my little hobby horses, and I tend to go on a little bit about this, so I'm going to apologise if I go now, but please, please, please remember, the Normans are alien. They are different. They look different. They dress different. They have their hair differently, that idea of the shaved back of the head, the idea of wearing a moustache instead of wearing a long beard like the Anglo-Saxons. They look different and they sound different. They speak a different language. They speak Norman French and they make no attempt to speak English. Why should they? They do not think of themselves as English. They think of themselves as Normans in England. So they speak French. And that's still with us today. And the perfect example is, if you think of food, we have two words for nearly every form of food. So, for example, when it's in the field, it's a pig. When it's on the table, it's pork. When it's in the field, it's a cow. When it's on the table, it's beef. And the reason for this is that the words for the food when it's in the field are Anglo-Saxon cow, sheep, pig. And the word for the food when it's on the table, beef, mutton, capon, are French. And that tells you everything you need to know about the social changes brought about by the Norman Conquest. The people who are in the field doing the work are English, and the people who are at table eating the food are French. And also, this change in language excludes Anglo-Saxons from taking part in the business of court. It excludes them from being able to engage with their overlords. They cannot speak to them. They cannot negotiate with them. There is no negotiation with someone who speaks an alien language. And so it erects a barrier between the social classes. In the feudal system, if you imagine, you've got the king, you've got the barons, you've got the knights, and then down the bottom you've got the Anglo-Saxons, and the two groups cannot communicate to each other in any meaningful fashion. It takes a very long time for Norman French and English to start to merge together and it's not until, really, you start to reach King John that you find a king who starts to think of himself as being English as much as he is French. Well, certainly Richard the Lionheart regards himself as being entirely French and barely spends any time at all in the English kingdom. So, language is a really, really important thing to get your head around. Where does that leave us? Well, I hope that it's clear that the Normans have a massive impact on life in England. And they have a massive impact on the organisation of the kingdom. They have a large impact on law. And they have a large impact on social structure. But day to day... I think you have to get your head around the idea 
that the impact of the Norman invasion is going to depend almost entirely on your social class. So, the further you are up in the social hierarchy, the, the further closer you are to the top of that feudal system pyramid, the bigger the impact the invasion has had on you, the bigger your life has changed, your inheritance has changed, the laws that govern how you act has changed, the oaths you have to make are changed, your rights and responsibilities have changed. But for the peasants, down at the bottom, not a lot's changed at all. And to be fair, that matches very closely with what William's here for. Remember, William comes over here as the rightful king in his head. This is what he's going to do. He has no intention of coming over and turning England into a carbon copy of Normandy. Aside from anything else, he's had a nightmare time trying to keep Normandy under control. Why would he want another copy of that over here? No, his intention is to come and take over England and only change what needs changing from his point of view to make it a better kingdom for him to run. The most important things to William is without a shadow of a doubt that his kingdom or both of his kingdoms, I suppose, his kingdom in England and his dukedom in Normandy, that they be successful, efficient, profitable, and secure. And the changes that he makes are all to do with that. The changes in the growth of towns are to drive profit. The changes in the organisation of the villages are minimal, but they're simply there to make it more efficient to gather the taxes and the produce that needs to be taken in. The imposition of the castles and the changes to the organization of the church, these are all to make the kingdom run more efficiently and to make it more secure. And finally, this use of landholding, this use of lordship, this use of patronage, this use of the, the oaths and the feudal system, allied with the grant of castles to those peoples he can trust and those people who will do the job he needs them to do, well, these are to make the kingdom secure, which is his absolute number one priority. So there you have it. This is an interesting question to get your head around, because it requires quite a fine-grained answer. Because the answer is actually, how much did Norman, how much did life change in Norman England? The answer is, it depends. It depends on who you are, and it depends which aspect of life you're talking about. And that makes it something very interesting to look at, but more importantly, very interesting and very easy to talk about in an exam. So there you have it. Thank you very much for listening, and good luck in your exams.